Hey, church family and friends, what a great joy it is to welcome you through our online campus today, and what a great privilege it is for us to be able to spend some time together studying God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you today, I want you to take it and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and just hold that ready for a few minutes. This is week four of a special sermon series called The Look of Love, which is really just a verse-by-verse study of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And the reason why we're calling this particular passage The Look of Love is because more than anything else, in this passage of Scripture, Paul shows us what love is supposed to look like in the lives of ordinary believers like you and me. When I was putting this message together, you know, I I found that it was interesting that our high school pastor, Matt Pineda, and my son, Andrew, and I put together the 2020 preaching calendar several months ago, months before the coronavirus, months before all of the events happened to uh, create the racial and civil unrest that's erupted in our country, months before the presidential election became the lead story in every news outlet that is around us. And while I'm not a subjective person in any way, shape, or form, I can't help but believe that months ago it was God who directed the timing of this particular study. Because I think we, were, we would all be in agreement that we live in troubling times, and every day is marked for most people by some level of anxiety and fear or discouragement or anger or separation or division, and you could go on and on and on. And so if ever there were a time when we as believers need to be reminded of how God expects us to behave as we live in this broken and fallen world, it's now. And really, that's what Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 is all about, the way God wants us to behave in the world, the way He wants us to love other people in the world. As I was writing this message, I tried to think of a single word that would describe, would be accurate in describing what God expects from us as believers. And after a lot of thought, I simply chose the word different. God expects us to be different. There's an early Christian document that's come to be known as the Epistle of Diognetus. And more than anything else, it's a written attempt to explain Christians. I want you to listen to just a short part of it. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric ways of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. Listen to this sentence. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. 
they are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death they are quickened to life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. You read or you hear that kind of explanation of early Christians, and that word different begins to really make sense. Christians need to be different. And one of the most significant ways we need to be different is in the way we love others. Let me give you a brief review of what we've seen so far. First, we looked at Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 and saw that the love that God wants us to have in our lives that we share with others has to begin with us. And the reason why I say that is because Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The key part is love must be sincere. If we're going to love other people in a way that honors God and creates a difference in our lives, then we've got to make sure that that love is genuine and that love is real. Next, we talked about how as this love begins to work its way out in the world, it begins with the family of God. Or in other words, we need to love one another in the family of God. We need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, the first part of the verse says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. God's expectation is that we love one another in the family of God because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you remember, if you heard that message, I described this as having a natural family love within the family of God. Last week, when we came together, we talked about how as that love continues to work its way out into the world, we need to love our enemies. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And friends, this is how we love our enemies, those who are against us, those who try to harm us. We seek the blessing of God in their lives. We pray for the blessing of God in their lives, but we need to do it sincerely with a right heart. Paul went, in, went on in Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16 to tell us that there are three ways that we can do that. We can do that when we identify, do the best we can to identify even with people who persecute us. When we try to live in harmony, we do our best to live in harmony with people who try to persecute us, and we make sure that we're accepting of everyone, even people who try to hurt us, who try to persecute us. Well, as we come together this weekend to continue our study, we're going to spend some time talking about one single verse of Scripture in our passage, and that's Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. But before we do that, I want us to just remind ourselves of this passage, and so we're going to read it together, or I'm going to read it, and I'm going to ask you to follow along. Follow along as I read, as I have every week, the entire passage that we're studying, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there it is. That's the passage that we're studying. As I mentioned, the specific part of this passage that we're looking at today is Romans 12:17, where Paul simply writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. I want you to know that I see that word different stamped all over that verse. First, in the instruction to not repay anyone evil for evil. This is obviously connected to what we talked about last week, in particular, Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, where Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I, I think you would agree with me that the natural human response to someone who has persecuted you, someone who has mistreated you, someone who has hurt you is to do the same thing to them. But the scriptures are clear, that's not what God wants. Now, someone might think, well, wait a minute, pastor. Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And the answer is absolutely, yes, it does. But here's what we need to understand. Those words always, when we read those words in the scripture, they always pertain to civil justice and never to personal revenge. The scriptures are clear both here in Romans chapter 12 and other places. Believers are not to seek revenge or take revenge when they're mistreated or persecuted by someone else. Instead, we are to trust God. And really, we see that, or we're going to see that in the weeks to come, especially next week. Because remember, uh, after our, our verse that we're studying today in verse 17, where it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. In the eyes of everyone, Paul goes on to say, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is what we need to remember. And so, the first part of Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 simply says that we need to make sure that we do not repay anyone evil for evil. I I don't really think that needs a whole lot of extra explanation because those words are pretty straightforward, and I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there because as we just read uh, next week, we're going to talk about that particular instruction in a lot more detail. And I'm going to stop right there because what I really want to do in our time together today is focus the majority of my attention on the latter part of Romans 12 and verse 17 that says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And while it may not immediately seem so, I can also see the word different stamped all over that part of the verse as well. You know, when you look at uh, this verse as a whole, I'm talking about Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, you could say that there's a negative side and a positive side to what Paul has written. The negative side is what you're not supposed to do. He begins by saying, do not repay anyone evil for evil. The positive side is what you are supposed to do. And that's the latter part of verse 17, where he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Let's just really focus on that positive side for a few minutes. 
In, able, in order to be able to understand the positive side of this verse, you have to understand one word in particular, one specific word, and that's the word right. The latter part of Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, Paul writes and says, be careful to do what is right or what's right in the eyes of everybody. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans 12, go ahead and underline the word right or circle the word right or highlight. If you use a highlighter in your Bible like I sometimes do, highlight the word right. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word kalos, K. A-L-O-S is the English rendering. And here's something really important to understand and remember. I need you to remember this about the word kalas. While it's translated as the word right here in my NIV Bible in Romans 12, 17, the latter part of the verse, it is often translated as good. It's often translated good in our English Bibles. In fact, One of the translations I read out of when I study uh, is the New King James Version. And in the New King James Version of the Bible, Romans 12, 17 is rendered like this. Repay no one evil for evil. And then here's the second part of the verse. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And in that verse, let's remember that the word good, actually the words good things come from that same Greek word, that word kalos. Let me give you another familiar verse where the word kalos that's translated right here in my NIV Bible is translated good. I know this is a familiar verse to many people. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 where Jesus says, in the same way let your light shine before men that they may see your good kalos, your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. I want you to understand this truth about this word. The word kalos is translated right in my NIV Bible, but oftentimes it's translated as good in our English Bibles. The truth is the word kalos is kind of a difficult word to translate because it means several different things. If you looked at it in the Greek lexicon, it means beautiful or handsome. It means commendable and admirable. It means genuine and honorable. The truth is it's such a noble word that it requires multiple definitions. So I got to thinking How can I best help you understand what this word kalos means on a practical level? And I decided the best way I can do that is to put it up next to another Greek word that can also be translated as either right or good and show you the difference that way. The other Greek word that I chose is the Greek word agathos. And the word agathos, again, is a word that can be sometimes translated right and sometimes translated good. The word agathos generally refers to being good in the moral sense. A simple way to say it would be that the word agathos means being good in the sense of following the rules. And this is important because as Christians, we should be increasingly agathos in every area of our life. We should follow God's instructions in every area of our life. We should follow God's rules in every area of our lives. And so the word agathos, that can sometimes be translated right or good, means good in the sense of being moral and upright. It means good in the sense of following the rules. In contrast to that, our word that we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, the word kalos 
also means being good in the moral sense. It also means following the rules. But it has the added dimension of making a difference. Being good in a way that makes a difference. Being good in a way that makes an impression. Being good in a way that makes an impact. I mean, think back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, which was the familiar verse that I used to show you the, how the word uh, colossus sometimes translated good. Again, Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good, kalos, good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And do you see the difference? Kalos good is more than just being good. It's doing good in a way that gets someone's attention and leads them to some kind of response. Now, having said that, and I hope that wasn't too confusing to you, I just really want you to understand the meaning of this word kalos that's translated right in Romans 12, 17 from my NIV Bible. Having said all that, I'm going to put the the entire verse back up on the screen that we're studying, Romans 12 and verse 17. Paul writes and says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right, kalas, good, kalas, in the eyes of everybody. Here's what I want you to understand. Living out this verse in our lives is more than just obeying the instruction to not repay anyone evil for evil. If that's all it were, then that would be agathos good, following the rules. Living out this verse in our lives means obeying the instruction to not repay anyone evil for evil and choosing to do what's right or what's good to everyone, including the people who have mistreated you, including the people who have persecuted you, doing good to them in a way that makes an impression on their lives. That's kalas good. Here's a simple way to look at it, and you ought to write this down somewhere if you'd like to take notes. Agathos is good, but kalas makes the difference. And so one of our highest goals as Christians should be to live a kalas good life, a life that not only follows the rules, a life that is not only morally right and follows the rules, but a life that makes a difference in the people around us. In a sermon called Christians, Salt and Light, a man named John Stott talks about a man named Robert Bella, a sociologist who teaches at the University of California at Berkeley. And Robert Bella is very interested in the influence of religion on the community. In an interview with Psychology Today, this is something that he said. He said, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture, listen to this, friends, the quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. You know, I read this week that a 2017 Gallup poll says that just over 70% of Americans identify with the Christian faith. And if that's the case, 
And we believe what Robert Bella says about the quality of a culture being changed when 2% of the people have a new vision, then the obvious question is, why isn't our Christian faith making more of an impact on the world around us, on the country that we live in? Maybe it's because, and I'll be the first to admit that this is going to sound kind of crazy, maybe it's because we're more concerned with being good than with doing good. And the truth is, we need to be both. We need to pursue both. We can't embrace agathos good, which is being good by being morally upright and following the rules. We can't embrace agathos good and at the same time neglect kalos good. And remember, kalos good is not only following the rules, but it's being good and doing good in a way that makes a difference in other people's lives in the world that you live in. If we want to make an impact on the world, we need to make sure that our focus is not just being good, but it's also doing good. If you've ever studied early church history, let's say the first three centuries of the early church, you can't help but be moved by the kalos good lives of early Christians, oftentimes in spite of great persecution and hardship. Let me give you some brief examples of the kind of persecution that early Christians faced. First, the prevailing view of religion in that day was that God existed in what we might call a generic way. And what I mean by that is anything could be God. Anyone and anything could be God. You could worship any God you wanted. There was no one and only God. Well, because Christians refused to buy into that system of belief, they were often accused as being what we would think of today as atheists because they didn't buy into this non-generic view that God could be anyone and anything. They were often accused of being complete unbelievers. That resulted in persecution. Second, paganism was so rampant in the city of Ephesus that the mayor, or as they called him, the clerk of Ephesus, was required as a part of his civic duties to offer publicly sacrifices to different gods every single day of the year. In most cases, the gods that they worshipped were very immoral because they offered their followers a license for unrestrained sexual fulfillment. The preeminent goddess of the first century was Artemis, who represented both virginity and motherhood. Her temples were filled with prostitutes who serviced her followers on demand. And since the transition from virginity to motherhood was consummated through sexual intercourse, then the act of sexual intercourse was celebrated as an act of worship and an act of loyalty to the goddess. Anyone then who believed in and practiced A pure life and a chaste life was scorned and ridiculed, and that resulted in persecution because that's the way early Christians looked at life. Third, in many parts of the Roman Empire, it was required that every resident would make the proclamation, Caesar is Lord. But Christians refused to do that. They refused to say those words because Jesus was the Lord of their lives, and they weren't going to deny him. Well, that led to early Christians being labeled as subversives, the early church being labeled as a hotbed of subversives, subversives rather, who posed a threat to the unity of the Roman Empire, and it resulted in some of the most horrific persecution that early Christians had to experience and endure. 
And friends, that's just a real small sampling of the kind of hatred and persecution that surrounded early Christians as they lived in the midst of paganism. But in spite of all that, those early Christians continued to be kalas good, to live kalas good lives, lives that made a difference. Most scholars who study early Christianity agree that at about A.D. 100, there were approximately 100,000 followers of Jesus. By A.D. 200, they identify nearly 1.5 million followers of Jesus. And then by the year A.D. 300, there are some that estimate that there were as many as 6 million people who claimed allegiance to Jesus. And what that means is that in an empire of 60 million people, the church made up a full 10% of those people. That's an astounding number. That number becomes even more astounding when you factor in the wholesale martyrdom of Christians and the rampant disease and frequent plagues that plagued the Roman Empire at that time. And so the question is, how did that happen? How did the number of Christ followers grow so significantly? Well, volumes of literature literature have been written to explain this phenomena, and for the most part, they all come to the same general conclusion. They say that it was not so much the dogma or of the early believers, what they believed that caused their numbers to grow, although their beliefs were certainly a big part of that. They say it wasn't their ministry plans. It wasn't strategic plans. It wasn't purpose statements and all those kinds of things that we think of today. The general consensus on how and why the early church grew as significantly as it did was the lives of the believers, the way they engaged the world around them. In the context of what we're talking about, it was their kalas, good lives. Let me give you just one quick example. In the book, Christianity on Trial... The authors write about two terrible epidemics that took place in the second and third centuries that claimed an incredible amount of lives in the Roman Empire. The first one claimed the lives of a quarter to a third of all the citizens there, and the second one killed as many as 5,000 people a day in Rome, the city of Rome alone. The people had little understanding of the origins of these diseases. And so when they came, they ran, putting as much distance as possible between them and anyone who was stricken with the disease. The terror of the people was indescribable. Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, writes these words. The pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. The Christians' response was different. They tended to stand fast in the cities and nurse the stricken. Providing food, water, and basic sanitation was not enough to save all the disease by any means and cost many their lives. Dionysius also wrote about this in an Easter letter. He wrote, Most of our brother Christians showed an unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
Heedless of any danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. They were kalas, good. Their lives reflected that kalas, good. And friends, this is the kind of life that God wants from all of us. If we're going to make a difference in the world, then we have to understand that it's not enough to simply be good. As important as that is, please don't misunderstand me about this. We need to live good lives. We need to live righteous lives. We need to follow God's instructions and commands, and we need to be obedient to his will in our lives. We need to live those agathos good lives. But we also need to understand the power of doing good. And that comes with living a kalas good life. And this is something that all of us can do. Because it doesn't have to be nearly as dramatic as the examples I gave you with regard to early Christians. A couple of years ago, about this time of year, and I'm sure many of you will remember this, as a part of rolling out our new One Life strategy of spiritual influence, we had Lee Strobel in for the weekend to be our special guest speaker. Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Unexpected Adventure, and I'm just going to close with this story. In the book, he tells the story of flying into Midway Airport in Chicago in the middle of a blizzard. He says an engineer from India was sitting next to him, and as they talked, or as they talked, he found out that this man from India was planning on taking a bus from Midway to O'Hare Airport, and then his pregnant wife was going to drive from a distant suburb with his two small children to pick him up. And Strobel said to him, look, I have a car at Midway. How about if I give you a lift home? And the man was very grateful. Strobel writes that during our drive, he asked why I had been willing to go out of my way for him. And he says, I tried to explain by asking this question. Has anybody ever done something so kind for you that it makes you want to pass a kindness along to someone else? And the man nodded slightly. And Strobel went on to say, well, Jesus Christ has done something incredibly kind for me. And he says, as we talked, the man from India began to understand that God's outpouring of grace is what had motivated Strobel to offer this invitation to help him. And when we arrived at his house, Strobel said, he thanked me, and then he spoke these words, I'm going to have to do some thinking about all of this. And Strobel concluded by saying, there's no doubt in my mind, my words about Jesus registered with him because he experienced the love of Jesus through my practical deed of giving him a ride in the middle of a storm. Doesn't have to be something dramatic. We can live out the reality of colossal good lives, doing good in a way that makes a difference in a hundred, a thousand different ways every single day. Because I'm convinced that 
each of us are surrounded every single day with opportunities to do good, colossus good. And that, friends, and I believe this in my heart as strongly as I believe anything, that's the way you change the world. One life, one family, and one opportunity at a time. When you live a colossus good life, when you do good, colossus good with your life, it makes a difference. It makes an impression. It makes an impact. And here's why. Because when you're doing good, you're showing up for Jesus because you're showing up just like Jesus. And that's what I want you to hang on to today. So when we look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, and we read these words, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right, kalas, right, good, in the eyes of everybody. We need to understand that to really follow that instruction, it's not enough just to obey the letter of the law, so to speak, in the first part of the verse, and make sure that we refuse to repay anyone evil for evil. We've got to do that, yes, for sure, but then we've got to take the next step and make sure that we do what's right and what's good in the eyes of everybody. We show up for Jesus because we show up like Jesus in the eyes of everybody, including the people who mistreat us and harm us and persecute us. That's the kind of life that God wants us to live. That's the kind of life that I hope that I can continue to try to strive for. And that's the kind of life that I hope you feel challenged to live today. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for a few minutes to study your word together. It's been a little bit different today because we've really focused on one particular word and what the application or the meaning of that word looks like in our lives. I pray that you would simply give us a conviction that the one way we can really make a difference in this world, the one way we can be involved on some level in changing the world, at least for someone somewhere, is by doing what's right, what's good for everybody, colossus good, doing something that captures the attention of those around us and leads to some kind of response. Help us to live those kinds of lives. In Jesus' name, amen.